Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you. Today, I'm going to continue speaking to you on the subject of enemies of God. And this is part two. Two weeks ago, we talked about enemies of God and we talked about liberalism, theological liberalism. Today, we're going to talk about something else, but I do want to have a subtitle called The Mother's Mandate. And the reason I want to call it The Mother's Mandate is do you realize the amount of social capital, (laughs) relational capital mothers have? Do you realize the voice a mother has? Nobody can be her voice. And so this is really a call for moms and for ladies to stand up in this day and this age to fill your shoes and to stand for what is true. There is such a thing as a demonic spirit, as Steve just read. Demons actually exist. However, most believers cannot discern demonic activity. Uh, To identify demonic activity, most believers would point to some famous singer with a devil outfit (laughs) on the stage during halftime of the Super Bowl, and they go like, ooh, that is so demonic. That's not really the problem we have. That kind of demonic is not really the issue. According to 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 5, an idea or an ideology that comes against the knowledge of God, that is in fact the deceptive demonic forces on this earth that we have to pull down. So I'm not trivializing that people actually want to dress up like the devil. I'm not thinking that's a good idea, and I'm not condoning that at all. But what I am saying is, is that's not deceptive. What is deceptive is not, I think it was Rihanna that dressed like a devil, or somebody, or Sam Smith. That's right. I can never, I, I can never uh, distinguish between the two, Rihanna or Sam. I don't know. But, you know, that's not the deceptive part of demon activity. Demonic activity is deceptive when it comes as a novel idea, as a good idea, as an idea that seems virtuous, or as an idea that seems so compassionate. Then, when a devil comes and, and teaches that idea, people buy into it immediately, not knowing that they're buying into doctrines of demons. The Bible even warns us that these strongholds that exist in people's minds are often erected by Satan's ministers of righteousness. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Teachings of demons. Now that means there are demons who are actively spreading evil doctrines evil belief systems for people to get caught up in. That is exactly why and what we are dealing with in the short series of Enemies of God. We will also learn how to pull down those demonic strongholds. The only way to pull down a stronghold which exists in people's thoughts and in their minds, just as Steve read in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 5, that we have to pull down those strongholds, but the only way you do that is by revealing, replacing it with the truth from God. You cannot remove darkness out of this room 
without putting light into it. The only possible way from taking darkness out of here is, from flip, is by flipping the light switch on. In the same way, the only possible way for us to eliminate a demonic thought and an ide ideology is by putting in God's thought regarding that same issue. The only possible way. And that's why, you know, many of us are social justice, not social justice warriors, but we are fighting social justice warriors. <laughs> but you don't realize that the war that you are fighting is not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities. It's these strongholds that exist in people's minds. These are ideologies. These are ideas. Ideas are real things because they have real, they have real consequences. And so, the way to pull down a thought is to put in its place God's thought. And that's how you pull down a stronghold in somebody's mind. Now, during the 17th and 18th centuries, we experienced what is called the Age of Enlightenment. And I'm going to draw a parallel between the Age of Enlightenment that happened in the, eight, in the 17th and 18th centuries with what we are dealing with in regards to wokeism. People just coining being enlightened differently. As they believed that they were being enlightened, today people believe that they are being awakened or they are woke. During this time, science and reason became man's false god. Science and human reasoning was elevated. Philosophers went to go and worship at the altar of human reasoning and science. And they started worshiping at the altar of human potential because human potential and personal happiness became man's ultimate goal. It was during the Enlightenment where people's goal in life was no longer God's glory, but was their own happiness. This is what the Enlightenment brought us. And there are reasons why this, is, this became their goal. So the philosophers of the day claimed that science and human reasoning became the only things that we could believe in. We can't see God, but we recognize reasoning. We can't see God, but we are starting to understand science. And so this is the only thing that we could put our faith in, they said. And since there is no eternity, because they didn't believe in it, human potential for the current, the here and now, and personal happiness now became the only purpose for man's existence. If all you have is here and now, when you breathe your last, you become compost and you are gone forever. There's nothing, no, no eternity. Why would you live for eternity? No, you would live for here and now. You see, this was the Enlightenment. Here are some of the philosophers of the Enlightenment who contributed to Satan's strongholds that exist in our current culture. All right, this is where the, these, this is where the damn walls started breaking. And today, we are standing in the middle of a flood of evil. First, we have what became the battle cry of the Enlightenment period when Voltaire said, crush 
that vile, unspeakable thing. Crush that vile, unspeakable thing. In this battle cry, Voltaire was referring to the Christian religion as the vile and unspeakable thing. Because the Enlightenment was a response, was an atheistic response to the Roman Catholic Church versus the Reformation. So the Reformation shot out one way and atheists shot out a different way. Because they both said, the Reformers said, no, this is not what the Bible says. And the atheists said, yeah, we're done with you. We're no longer interested in, um, in what you say is true. We will rather be enlightened by human reasoning and science. Now there you have the reason for the enlightenment. And that's why Voltaire said, crush that vile, unspeakable thing, that church that had its hand upon us, that kept us down. Not allowed to, not allowed to read, not allowed to study, not allowed to have a Bible. Education was not on the table. But what you have to do is you have to pay you have to pay because otherwise, guess what? There's hell awaiting you. So the Enlightenment was a result of a thousand years of being ruled by the church. Then we had Ludwig Führerbach. He said, quote, Christianity is a delusion. These guys were just done with the church. Then we see Karl Marx come up. He described Christianity and religion in, in uh, general, religion in general, and he said, quote, the opiate of the people. That's what he called it, the opiate of the people. He also said, man was the supreme divinity. Down with God, up with man. Man was supreme. Look at him reasoning. Look at him develop. Look at his potential. Think about what man can ultimately do. Man is supremely divine. Friedrich Nietzsche said, ultimately, and you all know this, God is dead. So what they were saying in this is, um, we don't need him. To us, he's dead. He doesn't matter. Because we have science. We have the universe. We have this world now. And we can be happy because we can choose to be happy. We can develop because we can choose to develop. We can choose our own futures. Therefore, we do not need a creator. We are now the creators of our own future. God is dead. Sigmund Freud actually described religion as, quote, a serious pathological condition from which one needed to be healed. These guys were so tired of being threatened by the church with flames. A serious pathological condition from which one needed to be healed. In our modern day and age, we have Richard Dawkins, who echoes the same kind of ideology. He says, quote, faith in God is a kind of mental illness. So last week, we introduced the enemy of God that rose from the period called the Age of Enlightenment, the first enemy that rose. And uh, this enemy was called liberalism. Liberalism, uh, I believe that you guys remember the first um, part in this series, liberalism. But what I want to show you is 
that there's a opposite to liberalism. So we have and then we have orthodoxy. So these two are opposites. And the way in which I want to explain that they are opposites is, remember the word liberalism. The moment you have an ism, you have turned something into an ideology. Liberal comes from the word liber, liber, which is liberty. But just because liberty is in the word doesn't mean it's good. I'll give you an example. The moment you turn something into an ideology, it could mean something completely different. Do you, uh, do, you, do you believe that you are a human? Do you believe you're human? Are you a humanist? Do you ascribe to humanism? No. Because it completely turns that into an ideology that you don't ascribe to, right? So, we have Lieber, which is liberty, but we have liberalism, which is different. It is actually the idea... Um, the word from which it comes is actually free, liber, thinking. Free thinking. Uh, free thinking is very different from orthodoxy because orthodoxy is not free thinking. And this is where we get the idea of right thinking. That's why liberalism is the opposite of orthodoxy. The right or, or the ability to think rightly. So therefore, I want to let you know that theological liberalism is in fact a spiritual defect. It's a spiritual defect. Because it does take what is good, freedom but it takes all boundaries away from that freedom. You are free to travel down the interstate within bounds. Stay in your lane and go the speed limit, but you are free to do that because there's bounds. That way everybody's safe. But to just be free in your thought, you are ever learning and never arriving at the truth. That's what the Bible says. He warns you against that. He says, don't you be the person who can never come to a conviction because orthodoxy, right thinking, um, um, concludes at convictions and lands there, shoots their roots, and lives there. Free thinking wants to keep moving from what's already been established to be a universal truth. That's why conservatism wants to conserve what we know is right thinking instead. Now, church leaders during that time decided to get into bed with, a, with the vain philosophers of the Enlightenment because it's always cool to be part of the elite, right? And so that's exactly what they did. Church leaders, pastors, and ministers started molding their theology around the thinking of the day. Liber, liberalism. <laughs> they, they came with 
the philosophy. They took their philosophy and they put their philo- philosophical glasses on and they went and they read the Bible. Already having, to es- having established their philosophy, they are now looking at theology. You know, a lot of people do that. When you come to Scripture, you've got to come to Scripture with no opinion because you're not looking to affirm your existing opinions. You're looking to find God's opinion, right? A lot of people... Many people do this. Is this better? Many people do this. They, uh, they basically get into, let's say, for instance, a church. They're looking for a church. This is what we do in, in the West, right? We church shop. And so what they do is they shop for the church that will affirm what they already believe. Yeah? And that's why you can even have an atheist church today. I just read yesterday that they have their first atheist mega church. <laughs> why do you even go? <laughs> Sleep in. <laughs> right? So how did these church leaders allow the spirit of liberalism to come into the church during the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries? Well, they did so by erasing the distinctions that made Christianity different from every other religion. I want to give you three examples. They needed, they needed theology to become part of their philosophy. I think it might be cold, I'm not sure. The way to do that is they had to mesh biblical doctrine of creation with Darwin's theory of evolution. And the way they did that, did that was they, they said Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve is not historical, it's poetry. There were no two people like Adam and Eve. It's a story that God was telling us to make a point. So it's not a real story. All you had to do was change the, um, the genre, the the literature, the genre of that literature, and say it's no, more, it's no longer history, it's just poetry. To mesh the biblical doctrine of young earth, which we believe the earth is 6,000 years old, which is young, in comparison to what they say, they say the earth is billions of years old. Well, to mesh the biblical doctrine of the young earth with scientific belief of an old earth theory, they taught that God never created the world in six days. Six days was only symbolic, it wasn't real. That way they could teach that the world was in fact millions and millions of years old. To mesh biblical doctrine with the social sciences and with Marxism, what they did is they started teaching that Jesus didn't come to deliver us from slavery of sin, but from slavery to social injustices and economical oppression, to deliver the have-nots from the haves, as in Marxism. You see, the gospel was no longer miraculous, It was now simply just a set of ethics. Just like every other religion is a set of ethics. They took Christianity that is built upon miracles. They removed the miracles of the virgin birth. They removed the miracles of the atonement, of the resurrection. And they said, no, no, Jesus just taught nice messages just like every other religion believes. And therefore, you know what? We're all the same, aren't we? And in doing so, they were able... To, to turn every miracle story in the Bible into a lesson on ethics. For instance, the story of Noah. Yeah, you have to take care of the earth. Otherwise, God's going to be upset. Just like the church leaders during the Enlightenment era, 
change their theology in order to accommodate worldly philosophies and secular trends, just like they did it back then, so also today the church leaders are changing their theology to accommodate liberal woke agendas. It's doing the exact same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. And the amount of woke churches today is just staggering. Spiritual adultery, adultery is a real thing. I don't know if you know that. That's why adultery is wrong, because it's misrepresenting Christ and the church. But spiritual adultery isn't new. It is a trend throughout history. Church leaders siding with what is popular instead of what is true, biblically true, or siding with causes that are, they are sympathetic toward instead of siding with biblical truth. That is when, when, they, when, when they would rather love or be loved by the world than loving the truth of Scripture. They would rather love the world and be loved by the world. Why do you think that when celebrity Christian ministers get onto an Oprah Winfrey talk show or whatever, whenever they asked a tough question, they will duck and dive that question. There is no part. Find me somebody that does not duck and dive that question. Whether it be on LGBT, is homosexuality a sin? They always do. Why? Because they want the love of the world. They want the world to love them. It's spiritual adultery. Jesus said very clearly, they hated me, they'll hate you. Now look, if you're not being hated, guess what? We have a problem, don't we? So you need to be okay with people disagreeing with you. But beyond disagreement, you have to also be okay with people hating you. So I'm really speaking to moms today. Alex is on board, but I'm speaking to moms. <laughs> I see him shaking his head. <laughs> Oftentimes what we have, we have this in inner thing that just, I just want everybody to love me. No, you have to fear God enough to not care. Literally not care. You care too much about self, too little about God. And that's what theologians have done throughout the ages. They care so much about the wrong. They have so much compassion for what God condemns. They have so much love for what God hates. That's, that's spiritual adultery. I'll show you an image. This has happened throughout the ages. I'm going to list many things, not just this one. So pace your anger. <laughs> but uh, but uh, throughout the ages, you'll see, um, even, with, even during the, the Third Reich with Hitler and the Nazis, you know that the church, the church was openly supporting Hitler, right? You know this. <clears throat> Today, you could list any, any, Theological, liberal ideology or, ad or agenda, and you will see church leaders and churches side with it and support it. It has to do it. Think about it. I'll just list a few. During COVID, the government told us people are sick and they're getting sick. So therefore, don't visit them. And even though visiting the sick is part of what ministers do, <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do, the ministers turned to the government and said, oh, okay, we won't visit anybody. 
the government said churches need to shut down. Casinos and strip clubs, they can be open. Churches, shut down. And the church leader said, okay. During the famous summer of love, rioters were burning down parts of our cities around the country, if you remember that. There wasn't just upheaval in D.C. It was all around the, all around the country. Politicians and the media told us to stand with BLM, a self-proclaimed Marxist organization. That's what they said they are. And we were told by the media to fight for social justice and church leaders everywhere kept their churches closed because it was dangerous, while at the same time encouraged the members to participate and they themselves in some of these marches where thousands and thousands of people gathered shoulder to shoulder. These guys include Joel Osteen did that. His church was closed, yet he marched. Jonathan Lehman, he, they closed their church, yet he marched. He actually hosted a march. It's mind-numbing. It's mind-numbing. I love watching those old John MacArthur interviews where he used to have CNN, uh, CNN's Larry King Live used to have him on. Larry King really liked John MacArthur because uh, he didn't... Um, Pull a punch. Larry almost always had another Christian minister on with John MacArthur who would oppose MacArthur um, on the fact that Jesus is the only way. And the only way they would always oppose him is like, well, God is love and we are all God's children. No, we're not. We're all part of the brotherhood. No, the Bible talks about neighborhood, not brotherhood. Brotherhood is for all believers. The brotherhood are the believers. The rest are all neighbors. You have to love them. So the free thinking spirit of liberalism is the, en is the, enemy, is the enemy of right thinking. You can choose to be a free thinker or you can choose to be a right thinker. And as a church, we need to pull those strongholds down by repenting. There are things we have to repent from. In other words, we have to turn away from them. First is repent for compromising our theology in order to accommodate deceptive theologies. What they did in the 16th, uh, 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, the ministers are doing it today, Christians are doing it again today, and we have to repent from first embracing a philosophy and then turning to the Bible in search of a theology. No. You shed your philosophy. You find a theology in scriptures and then you turn to what does it mean to have justice in our society? What does social justice mean? With biblical lenses on, then you ask that question. What they do is they determine what social justice is and then they come to the Bible to find a verse that they can use to support their claim. Are you all with me? So... What we have to do to pull down the cobwebs and, all, all of the, and remove the darkness and see clearly is we have to learn to repent. The first thing is we have to repent from our compromise, compromising our theology in order to accommodate, accommodate deceptive philosophies, Colossians 2.8. Secondly, we have to repent for cultivating the sin of guile, which I talked to you about last week. The sin of guile, what is that? It's like not being honest. That's what that is. 
The sin of guile by doing what? By practicing political correctness. If you find somebody who cannot tell you the truth, know this, you can't trust them. If they can't tell you what they truly believe, then don't trust them. The question is, can you be trusted? I can't say what I really think. It's not politically correct. Well, that's guile. John 1 verse 47. We have to also repent from, instead of identifying tolerance as compromise, we view tolerance as something we have because we are patient and loving towards those who disagree with Scripture. Let me explain it just in more layman's terms. When, when somebody says, you've got to be tolerant, what are they saying is you have to basically be patient, accept where this person stands, what they believe and what they are saying. You have to be tolerant in what they're doing. Be patient with them. When in fact, it is not patience. It is not compassion. It is not loving at all. Tolerance is in fact, you're just compromising with truth. You're just saying, all right, yeah, no. Why? Bring, bring all of that into the church. It's okay, we'll tolerate that. That is what is compromising the truth of God, Revelations 2.20, and we need to repent of it. So last week, we were introduced to this new enemy of God, or the first enemy of God, the theological liberalism. Today, I would like to introduce you to the next enemy of God, which is called, wow, secular humanism. Secular humanism. Why does this matter? Because it's an ism. It's an ideology. It's an idea. It's a thought. It's a belief system. And it has an effect on your life. There are outcomes in your world, in your neighborhood, in your family, at the schools you send your children to. All of your world has this spirit, this enemy of God in it. With this, I want to introduce to you, of course, um, the fact that moms need to learn how to respond to secular humanism, just like you need to learn to respond, identify theological liberalism, know how to respond to it by repenting from those three things I just mentioned to you. But here we have secular humanism, and we need to know how to deal with this in our world, how to pull down those strongholds that exist are we going to look at what secular? Are we going to look at what secular humanism is, uh, and how, especially mothers, are to respond to this? Now, the thing about secular humanism is that it is an ideology, as I mentioned to you, and it is it's taught in our schools. Every single public school teaches this. This spirit controls the curriculums. It is enshrined in our colleges and our universities. It is the religion of our civil government. It is propagated in our media. The moment you do not submit to this spirit, you will be called many, many names. People are called many, many names the moment they say, wait a minute, I don't agree. Because this spirit has, been, has grown and grown, is so rampant in our society, it has become even part of what people now see as virtuous. The word secularism comes from the words seculum, 
So let me just put this down. This is a Latin word. And a second word, I just want to make sure I spell it right, mundus. I just want to know, M-U-N-D-U-S, got it. I don't even know if you guys can see this. But both of these words mean something in order to understand what secular humanism means. We have to understand these two words. Sec seculum is time. In other words, you live now as opposed to eternally. Mundus means space, time and space. So what secularism means is that this is the time and the only time you have. There is no time like eternity. And this is the only world there is. There's nothing beyond this. And uh, where, where this goes up against Scripture is that we are called by God to live with eternity in view. You live with eternity in mind. You are eternally minded. But secularism says to you there is no eternity. There is only here and now. Live it up. <clears throat> so it stems from liberalism, and it's basically saying these two things. Let me just repeat that. Number one, all we have is the here and now. In other words, there is no eternity which follows that there is therefore no future judgment. You don't have an ultimate judge. The universe is all there is. Science. It's the only thing we can prove. There is no God. We can't prove Him. Therefore, there is no Creator. Strange. There's a creation. I don't know why there's no Creator. But there's no Creator. There's no God. We can't prove Him. And only time... Matter and chance are the only things there is. In an ever-changing universe, science and reason, therefore, must reign supreme. Secular. Let me say that again. In an ever-changing universe, science and human reasoning must reign supreme. As a matter of fact, there is no law other than science and reason. The second point that secular humanism says is that humanism part, is that man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. Man determines his own ethics. We determine what's right and wrong. We determine our own morality, and therefore, we determine our own future. We can decide to live out our potential. Now, the USA, United States of America, is no longer Christian. She is now secular. The, the, the irreligious love quoting separation between church and state. Separation between church and state. The moment you want to say something, they're like, separation between church and state. But even though that is true, it is true so that the state would not impose itself upon the church. Why do we have separation in church and state? Because when they came here to the New World, they came from England where the church was the state, or they had the state church. And so they said, it's not working. 
We have to have separation between church and state so that the state cannot impose itself upon the church. However, when separation between church and state became a thing, there was no intention to create a separation between state and God. Never have we agreed that there's a separation between state and God, that our civil authorities need to act and live and rule as if there is no God. That is not what that means. We will not agree to that. Why? Because Jesus is Lord of all. He is King of all kings. Secular humanism rejects God's view of fallen man. He makes man the measure of all things and elevates man to, to, to supreme position. Secular humanism rejects the idea that humans are totally depraved, and here's the problem. Instead, they claim that man is ultimately good. I'd like to show you this short video. Secular humanism uh, isn't just anti-God, but secular humanism is anti-fallen man. Like it doesn't believe, it doesn't teach man is fallen, that man is bad. Nobody's bad. Everybody is good at the core. Ultimately, man is good, which is completely opposite of biblical teaching of the nature of a fallen man. I've always wondered why Darwinism is so widely accepted, have you? Yet it's still a theory, but they teach it as a fact, don't they? And <clears throat> I realize that the answer to why it's so widely accepted and so pushed all over the world is like really pushed down people's throats in schools is because it means it's a mean, means of explaining away God as our creator. That's, that's the ultimate goal there. And the ideology of secular humanism has captured not just our culture, our politics, or our education system, but it has also filtered into the pulpits. Watch this Andy Stanley clip. There's no necessary conflict between evolution and the 
they see no clash between evolution and the identity of God. But I'm going to show you how there was a huge conflict between evolution and Jesus. Do you believe in evolution or do you believe in the Bible? I believe in evolution. I believe in evolution. Respect Jesus. Now, he destroyed evolution with one sentence. He said, in the beginning, God made them male and female. It says, birds and bees, without male and female, there's no reproduction. Evolution doesn't make provision for that. In the beginning, the slugs, and the slugs were the nosy, and became a set of primates. It was neither male or female. Only way it can work is if there's a male and female reproducing after their own kind. Because evolution is a means. Theism says there was an agent. There, I have one high school biology teacher, Christian, here. It's like, please, would somebody make this clear? I know this is like really important because people come home, kids come home from biology class, high school, like, well, you know, without evolution, no, we don't believe in evolution, we believe in creation. Wait, 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 hang, hang on. This is very important. This is even more important. There's not the slightest evidence of Darwinian evolution. I know because I asked the experts. I pressed evolutionary professors at UCLA and USC for any evidence, and they found they couldn't think of any. Changes within species, such as birds adapting beaks, but there is no evidence for what Darwin theorized, a change of times, primates to man. So my question for Andy Stanley is, don't you believe Jesus? If you do, forget this unscientific, unproven, and unprovable theory, and believe Jesus. If you don't believe Jesus, then don't call yourself a Christian. Be a man and step out of the pulpit and stop misleading your flock and those who listen to you. And the reason it's embraced by so many in the world is because it doesn't have a moral dictate. God says certain things are right and wrong. Evolution says no, it's survival. Thank you. You do what you want. Secular humanism's central doctrine is autonomy. Um, if you have children, you want to know this because it means. You decide what's ethical. You decide what it means to be moral. You decide what it means to be compassionate. You decide what it means to be what, what it means to be righteous, what it means to be wicked. You decide what is good and evil. You decide what gender you are. You decide everything. You see, humanism, secular humanism, is telling you that you decide the world. You are the creator of your own world. This is better understood as relativism. There is no public school or college campus anywhere where relativism doesn't reign supreme. We'll skip this next video just because of time, but since there is only a here and now, it follows that there is no then and there. Since this life is all there is, there is therefore no eternal future. Since there is no eternal future, there is no future judge to whom we will give an account to. That means we are free to be creators of our own earthly destiny. And we are therefore our own judge. And here comes, therefore, in view of secular humanism, which is no God, God down, man up. Here are some mandates for you. Number one. To fight secular humanism, to pull down those, those thoughts that have lodged in people's minds, 
we have to start by cultivating, cultivating a high view of Scripture. Cultivating a high view of Scripture. There is no other possible way of fighting ideologies and philosophies, vain philosophies, other than with God's thoughts. You aren't going to outthink a philosopher. That is not how you fix something. You bring the truth to the table. God's truth. So you have to cultivate a high view of Scripture. In Psalm 138 verse 2 it says, For you, God, have magnified your word, your Scripture, above all your name. You have magnified your word above all your name. God holds His word as highest in all of the universe. You and I have to have a high view of Scripture. Secular humanism, in a nutshell, is down with God, up with man. And the way any Christian society will slip into secular humanism is by doing these two things. Deny the inerrancy of Scripture. Trivialize Scripture. Don't study it. Don't read it. The only thing is feel bad if you drop a Bible. That's the only thing. But don't, don't know it. That is how a society like ours drifted into secular humanism. They denied the inerrancy of Scripture. And number two, deny the doctrine of total depravity. And I can't state that, I, I can't emphasize that more. They denied the doctrine of total depravity. Churches do it today. Our church used to be much larger, just split because doctrine of total depravity. I remember teaching on the doctrine of total depravity, which doesn't mean you are utterly... You, total depravity doesn't say you are as bad as you possibly could be. Total depravity simply means every part of who you are has been touched by sin. Your nature has been touched by sin. Your mind, the Bible says, cannot submit to God. Your eyes are blind because of sin. Your ears cannot hear the truth because of sin. Your heart is a stone because of sin. Our bodies wear out because of sin. There isn't a part of us that hasn't been touched by sin. And people hate that. They hate that. They want to believe that Jesus died for them because they are so wonderfully valuable. And when I said, remember I showed that video of Todd White saying, if you want to know how valuable you are, look at the cross. That's what God paid for to get you. No, he didn't buy. No, he, he purchased your sin. He paid your sin. He purchased you out of death. And this is what's so glorious about it. That you were his enemy. The Bible actually says, and we, we became altogether worthless. Yet, not because of our value, but because of his love, he came and saved you. For God so valued you that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. No, no, no. For God didn't so value you. No, for God so loved you. And because He paid that price, now you are valuable because of what He did, not because of who you are. It's like a painting. A painting is only valuable because of the amount we're willing to put on it. But if you want to believe that it's because you're so valuable, well... Go ahead and share His glory with Him. But when I brought that to the church, oh, did people get angry. 
somebody asked to meet me in Starbucks and actually from our church cussed me out. Can you believe it? So loud, everybody heard him. Because he believed, I said, he's not valuable. <laughs> the church hates, well, many, many people in the church hates that doctrine. The doctrine of total depravity. But the reason humanism was able to rise is because the church always drops the ball. Reject one of God's major doctrines and scriptures and there will always be a consequence. I want to say this. Moms, remember that it was Eve who initially failed at holding to a high view of God's word. Instead, she trivialized His word and she held a high view of Satan's word and her opinion. So the first thing we have to do is cultivate a high view of Scripture. The second thing we have to do is cultivate an accurate view of the nature of fallen man, totally depraved. Totally depraved. And here is a list of the different ways Scripture explains the nature of fallen man. Just buckle up, sit back, here it goes. Fallen man is spiritually dead, Ephesians 2.3, Colossians 2.13, spiritually dead. Fallen man is hostile to God, Romans 8.7. He cannot submit to God's law, Romans 8.7. He cannot please God, Romans 8.8. 8. He cannot understand the things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14, Romans 3.11. He cannot accept the Holy Spirit, John 14.17. He cannot see the kingdom of God, John 3.3. 3. He cannot hear the words of Christ, John 8.43. He cannot see the light of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.8. He cannot, he thinks the gospel is foolish, 1 Corinthians 1.18. He does not seek God. Romans 3.8. For all the seeker-sensitive churches, he does not seek God. There are, not, there are no people who seek after God. But they build their services around that idea. He does not seek God. Romans 3.11. He does not fear God. Romans 3.18. His heart is wicked. Jeremiah 17.9. He loves the darkness and he has no love for the light. John 3.19. He is blind to the truth. 2 Corinthians 4.3 and 4. Now, what I want to encourage you with in order to cultivate an accurate view of the nature of fallen man is to refuse to allow false teachers like Andy Stanley or Starbucks to cause you to think more of yourself than you ought to. Jesus did not come for the healed. You got a guy sitting in a jumpsuit going, I have no dark side. How did he get there? Secular humanism, that's how you got there. We have to. Moms, you have to look at your child and teach the doctrine of total depravity to him. You have to look at yourself in the mirror and do it. You have to look at your husband. No, skip him. He's perfect. Number three, the third thing, the third mandate is we have to give up our freedom to stay oblivious. Give up your freedom to just stay oblivious. We've, we've had enough of that. Make it your business to know what is actually going on. Proverbs 27, 23 says, Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. With this, I'll just say that I went to go see my son's principal six times in one single year, and then we took him out before that year was over. Know what's going on. Stop remaining so oblivious. Not realizing, I mean, 
Andy Stanley is one example, but you should hear the amount of woke preachers teaching secular humanism from the pulpits because they have no biblical doctrine, so they don't even know that they're breaking God's law. Stop giving yourself the freedom to remain oblivious. When the LGBTQ started canceling people and showing up at churches and protesting churches, people encouraged me to, st to not be outspoken. You can't not be outspoken <laughs> with what you believe. We believe, therefore we speak. The Bible says, I thought, I, th I thought one night I was having a heart attack. I'm just telling you examples of how we respond to secular humanism. My, my son's high school teacher hated hearing that I was standing in the lobby waiting for her. Public school, excuse me. We have family that love every post I post with the exception of anything Biblical regarding LGBT. <laughs> One night I thought I was having a heart attack. My heart was pounding really hard for some reason. Couldn't sleep at all. I was sweating. I thought, you know, when something happens, you start feeling everything's falling apart, everything's going wrong. I thought, I think I lost oh, feeling in my arms. <laughs> so, so that next morning I thought, that's it. I'm going to see a doctor. I went to the doctor, went to the hospital, and they... Um, where they, we have to check in, they asked me which gender I would prefer. And uh, I almost had a heart attack right there. <laughs> now, not in so many words, but I said to the lady, of course, my anger was burning towards her and that they would treat you like you are that stupid. I said, if, I said in, in, not in so many words, but I said, if you, if you cannot be honest regarding my gender, how can I trust you will be honest regarding my diagnosis? So we have to give up our freedom to stay oblivious and just like, oh, those people are crazy. Oh, those are that stupid. And keep it to yourself. You have to re replace a lie with the truth. Otherwise, you've done nothing about it. Number four, I'm not asking you to be nasty or anything. But I'm asking everybody to grow a spine. Finally, what you have to do is realize that God calls you not to live with this life in mind, secular, but to live in light of eternity. God's calling you to be eternally minded. I raise my kids for then, not now. I do what I do for then, not now. I have an audience of one. It's God. And if you have an audience of one, it really wouldn't matter what your family said about you, would it? Who's that one? God. You live your whole life before the Lord. Secular humanism calls man to live in his whole entire life in light of the here and now. With a mindset of, this is all there is. No future after death. No eternity. No divine judgment. There are no absolutes. Except for... I'm absolutely sure of the fact that there are no absolutes. <laughs> Secular humanism is, in fact, a call to hedonism. If you think about it, that's why our children today in this generation ascribe to hedonism. Hedonism is, hey, if it feels good, do it. 
It's this spirit that is driving that behavior. Living only for pleasure. Where do you think the statement, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, comes from? Secular humanism. So in contrast, think of Jesus calling us to lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven instead. I'll close with this verse, Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. Do not store up for yourself treasure on earth. What is your life? It's like a fleeting shadow. It's like grass here today, gone tomorrow. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Live for then, not now. Be eternally minded, not temporarily minded. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They have successfully, this spirit has successfully taken a whole entire generation and caused their hearts to not be towards heaven. Let's pray. Father, today I pray <clears throat> that we will look at our lives and the world in which we live with clear eyes. That we will always be ready to give an answer that we will always be ready in season and out of season. I pray, Father God, that you help us be a light that shines. Not a light that is dim, not a light that is off, but a light that shines in this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.